Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject. The creators of the 1939 Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer film, The Wizard of Oz. Now let's return to our story about The Wizard of Oz. Oz resumed production on November 4, 1938, with director Victor Fleming. Fleming already had a reputation as MGM's fixer of problem productions. His experience dated back to silent films, working for various directors, including D.W. Griffith. He made stars out of Gary Cooper, Clark Gable, Spencer Tracy, and Gene Harlow in the late 20s and early 30s. Having made a good living in motion pictures for many years, Fleming lived the high life on his 20-acre horse ranch in Bel Air, riding a motorcycle years before it was fashionable. As good-looking as the men he directed, he also carried on affairs with many of his leading ladies, ranging from Clara Bow to Ingrid Bergman, finally marrying at age 34 in 1933. Although considered a breach of studio etiquette and the star system, Clark Gable routinely ate lunch with Fleming at the studio commissary. Such was his respect for the director, also a close friend. The Oz filming process was difficult for several fundamental reasons. Technicolor required the brightest lighting possible, making the soundstage a sweltering environment. Like Jack Haley, both Ray Bolger and Burt Lahr were fitted with costumes that were cumbersome and extremely uncomfortable. Bolger's wrinkled burlap face was provided by a specially molded rubber mask that covered his head and neck, with the exception of his nose, mouth, and eyes. The mask had to be glued on daily, makeup then manually added to his visible nose and mouth. This process took two hours, necessitating Bolger's studio arrival at 6.15 a.m. Lars' lion costume and makeup was even worse. The padded bodysuit he wore weighed 90 pounds. Prosthetic devices were glued to his face that prevented him from eating anything that he couldn't ingest through a straw. Haley's costume, actually comprised of matted cotton, leather, and cellophane, was so stiff that he couldn't sit down once he put it on. For Haley, that was a problem as he was moonlighting on a nighttime radio show and tried to take cat naps in between takes. He eventually was able to lean on a board on his back and doze off. After an initial lunch in the commissary, the studio suggested they eat by themselves in a private bungalow. Such was the distraction they created in the studio's crowded common lunch area. At least this trio could share their misery. Margaret Hamilton's makeup also required two hours, including a false nose, fake chin, and green makeup applied to her face, arms, and hands. 
Once in costume, she could not touch anything as that left visible green streaks. Lunch for her was a peanut butter sandwich, celery, and a cup of coffee, all administered by an assistant as the green makeup was toxic and dangerous if swallowed. All of this she endured by herself in a tent provided as her makeshift dressing room. Her copper-based makeup was so pervasive that after several weeks of filming, even after the substance was removed, when filming concluded, her skin remained a permanently visible shade of green. It was months after production ended that her skin returned to a normal complexion. Judy Garland faced challenges of a different kind. Playing the part of a 12-year-old required that any appearance of breasts were eliminated by a constrictive corset that forcibly flattened her chest. Between her mother and the studio, every aspect of Judy's life was choreographed, especially when it came to diet. She was encouraged to smoke tobacco and drink coffee, practices that inhibited appetite. Her mother had already exposed her to amphetamines at a young age, again as a diet inhibitor and energy booster. This practice would have dire long-term consequences. Frank Morgan had a different coping mechanism. One Hollywood legend had him showing up at the studio every day with an attache case that actually contained a mini bar, and his predilection for champagne was well known. With alcohol kept to the dressing room, Morgan's performance in front of the cameras was impeccable, and he was well-liked by all of his co-stars. The only difficulty Victor Fleming ever had with Morgan was when he wasn't drinking, the actor occasionally irascible and disagreeable. Once, in front of a crew member, Fleming chided Morgan, saying, Get back on your champagne kick so we can live together. Only close friends could possibly get away with such a zinger. Fleming was cordial enough with Morgan to buy his 81-foot yacht named the Dolphin. Another production challenge was the preparation and choreography of the Munchkinland scenes, frequently involving over a hundred individuals. One blessing was that besides Judy Garland and Billy Burke, who played Glinda, all of the other voices were lip-synced and ultimately recorded by several voiceover artists associated with Disney productions. Their voices were then sped up to varying degrees to get the appropriate sound for a tiny person. Although the Munchkinland numbers are among the most impressive musical and dance songs ever filmed in Hollywood, it was the alleged off-screen antics of these unique actors that eventually added to the Oz legend. On the Jack Parr show in 1967, to much laughter, Judy Garland described the acting troupe as a, quote, bunch of drunks who got smashed every night, unquote, and one even propositioned her. She also claimed that if a munchkin became too intoxicated to navigate their way back to their Culver City hotel, they would be picked up with butterfly nets. Although Garland was known to exaggerate, screenwriter Noel Langley referred to the group collectively as the wildest little whoring rascals you ever saw. Mervyn Leroy's 1974 autobiography recollected truly depraved behavior. They had sex orgies in the hotel. We had to have police on just about every floor. By the time these urban legends became ingrained, any contradictions from actual surviving munchkins themselves were typically ignored. Out of 100-plus individuals, many with a carnival or show business background, it is likely, at some point, a few individuals got out of hand, but it is also more likely that rumors of crazed, wild behavior are nothing more than embellished Hollywood legend. More troubling was the behavior of Leo Singer, who was contracted and paid by MGM 
and it was supposed to pay the actors $50 a week for rehearsals and $100 a week for actual filming. It has long been maintained that Singer pocketed any money forwarded by the studio and typically avoided paying much of anything other than routine expenses. The salaries themselves, even if paid, were less than what Terry the Dog was paid to play Toto, $175 weekly. Unfortunately, Buddy Ebsen was not the only actor to suffer serious injury during the making of the film. Part of the beauty of The Wizard of Oz is that scenes involving special effects like the winged monkeys, the poppy field, and Munchkinland seem both incredibly realistic and effortless. The opposite was actually the case, with a great degree of planning or even engineering involved in putting together these moments. One such effort involved the Wicked Witch of the West, Margaret Hamilton, and her fiery exit from Munchkinland in a cloud of red dust and flame. Seemingly, she magically disappears into thin air. Actually, her escape was set in motion by an elevator that lowered her beneath the sound stage. Hamilton had to back her way into an exact spot on the stage with perfect timing to escape any flames as she was lowered out of sight. If her legs were even slightly unaligned, she could break one or both as she fell through the opening. Two stagehands were ready to grab her as she came down the elevator. Hamilton rehearsed the scene and processed endlessly, getting to the correct spot, tightening her elbows next to her sides so they did not slam on the edge of the pit, keeping her costume behind her and clutching the broomstick close to her chest so it did not get caught on the opening. The first take was so good that when Hamilton returned to the soundstage from below, the usually stern Fleming was actually smiling. However, he typically demanded another take as a precaution. As it was lunchtime, the entire crew left for a break, and when they returned, nothing went right. And after four takes with mistakes, Fleming returned to his typical drill sergeant demeanor. After demanding that everyone pull themselves together and get the scene done, Hamilton proceeded. This time, the flame effect started way too early. The witch's broomstick and hat ignited, and by the time Hamilton was grabbed off of the elevator below, her eyelashes and one eyebrow were gone, an upper lip and one eyelid badly burned. Her right hand was also severely injured, and the toxic copper-based makeup had to be removed manually, alcohol painfully applied to a large and essentially open wound. Hamilton was in agony, claiming subsequently that she had never experienced such pain. Ointment was also applied to her face and covered with gauze, only her eyes, nose, and mouth left uncovered. Luckily, Hamilton was not needed for filming for six weeks, and when she returned, she was told she would have to ride on a mechanical device that simulated her flying above the Emerald City as part of the Surrender Dorothy scene. The device also spewed smoke from a pipe concealed by her broomstick, Hamilton absolutely refused to have anything to do with the smoke device, agreeing only to close-ups with the wind machine and the broomstick rocking back and forth. She told Victor Fleming that he could terminate her if he wanted, but she would not get near any fire-related special effects again. The situation was resolved when her stand-in, stuntwoman Betty Danko, agreed to do the scene, despite Hamilton advising her not to. Sure enough, even after two successful takes with Danko on the device, a third take resulted in the pipe device exploding. Danko was practically thrown off of the broomstick device and had to hang on while stagehands lowered her to the ground. She was hospitalized for 11 days with a two-inch deep gash in her left leg.
although a similar elevator device and dry ice would be used to simulate the witch being melted. Margaret Hamilton was not exposed to any more open flame herself. She did have to light the scarecrow, Ray Bolger, on fire on five separate takes, a sequence that left her faint with anxiety, afraid that her co-star would be seriously injured. The shots went off without a hitch. Filming of The Wizard of Oz concluded on March 10, 1939, without any other serious injury. By then, Victor Fleming was long gone, having been transferred at the request of Clark Gable to another MGM headache, Gone with the Wind. Another quality director, King Vidor, was brought in to film the monochromatic Kansas scenes, and over five months after it began, the film was a wrap. But the post-production and publicity that was always part of such a major production was just beginning. Numerous special effects, like the 35-foot-long rotating motorized canvas sleeve that simulated the twister in the film's opening moments, no, it wasn't a woman's stocking, as subsequently reported, or the electrical sparks superimposed on the ruby slippers when the witch attempts to remove them, needed to be added. Sneak previews also played a role in any final cut of an important film, and The Wizard of Oz was no different. On June 4, 1939, in San Bernardino, California, the unedited film was shown to the public for the first time, and again on June 16, in Pomona. All 951 preview cards turned in after the second preview were enthusiastic, an unheard-of number. Judy Garland was also on hand to sign autographs. A final preview was shown in San Luis Obispo, no less ecstatic, and with each showing the film was edited with whole musical sequences removed, including an extended dance number by Ray Bolger after If I Only Had a Brain, a triumphant return by Dorothy and her friends to the Emerald City with a reprise of the tune Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead, and most importantly, a dance sequence called The Jitterbug, performed in the haunted forest, a timely tribute to the jitterbug dance craze that was removed because it was felt that the craze might soon end, hopelessly dating the film. At one point, even the song Over the Rainbow was on the chopping block, actually removed after the San Luis Obispo preview by Louis B. Mayer because he felt it dragged out the Kansas sequence and was also way too mature of a sentiment for a 12-year-old girl. But in the end, the song remained when Leroy Freed and even Roger Edens adamantly implored the studio head and other executives to change their minds. Other edits were performed to get the film down to an acceptable 101 minutes. The Wizard of Oz has taken on such a legendary prominence that several Wisconsin towns have since taken credit for the first actual screening of the completed film. The town of Oconomowoc, Wisconsin, has a plaque stating that the world premiere of the film occurred at its Strand Theater on August 12, 1939. But an ad in the Green Bay Press Gazette states that the film opened there at the town's Orpheum Theater on August 10th. Such early Midwestern previews were designed to determine how Middle America would react to a major film. There can be no doubt that the official Hollywood premiere took place on August 15th at Grauman's Chinese Theater. Invited to the premiere, L. Frank Baum's widow Maud could have walked to the event as her home, Oscott, was only five blocks away. The New York premiere on August 17th also featured live singing and dancing performances by Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney at the Capitol Theater. Other live performances occurred in Washington, D.C., 
Bridgeport, and New Haven, Connecticut, and then a return to New York for a brief engagement in which they performed in between screenings of the film five times a day, an appearance which instigated daily lines of patrons around the block. With the film's national release nationwide in late August and September, The Wizard of Oz impressed both critics and viewers alike in a year that featured some of the most prominent American films ever made. But predictably, the film's expense meant that despite national popularity, it did not generate a profit. With a gross of just slightly over $3 million, the movie, when post-production costs were added in, officially lost about a million dollars. Although the film did receive five Academy Award nominations, not a single actor from Oz was nominated. In the end, it received two Oscars for Best Original Song, Over the Rainbow, and Best Original Score. Judy Garland did receive a special Academy Juvenile Award, but this was an honorary statuette for her body of work in 1939. So, despite the occasional theatrical release that generated additional revenue that allowed the movie to finally turn a profit as of 1949, The Wizard of Oz might have simply remained one of many memorable films from the glory years of the great American motion picture studios of the 30s and 40s. It was inevitable that television would alter the perception of The Wizard of Oz, but not as the medium changed the American perspective on most classic Hollywood films. Fueled by the wild ratings for the March 5, 1955 NBC TV broadcast of the stage version of Peter Pan starring Mary Martin, CBS made a deal to show The Wizard of Oz on television for the first time. There is some disagreement on the terms of the deal itself, but it is clear that the network intended that this would not be a one-time screening. The film was first shown on television on November 3, 1956. Although most Americans did not have the benefit of color television, it was a ratings hit watched by an estimated 45 million viewers. CBS contracted for two showings and wished to be selective about when it screened the film again. It was more than three years later that the network showed the movie for the second time on December 13, 1959. In the late 50s, it was unthinkable to pad a two-hour block of television with commercials, so in-studio guests filled up the extra 20 minutes with occasional breaks during the 101 minutes of the film's running time. 1956 featured Burt Lahr and 10-year-old Liza Minnelli, 1959 featured CBS network regular Red Skelton and his daughter. The film was also moved from 9 p.m. to 6 p.m. on a Sunday, the resulting ratings even better than 1956 with CBS thus deciding to make The Wizard of Oz an annual event. By late 1963, the show already had such a national impact that the network deemed it inappropriate to show it in light of the November 22nd assassination of President Kennedy. It would not be seen until January of 1964. Although the network did show the film once in black and white in 1961, its color telecasts made the film especially memorable once color sets became more prevalent. For several generations of American children, the annual screening of The Wizard of Oz became a magical event. By the late 60s, the amount of commercial time on television increased especially for high-profile broadcasts, and when NBC won a bidding war and began showing the film in 1968, it did so without any accompanying host or material. In fact, televised versions of the film frequently made minute edits 
to the movie to jam in as much commercial time as possible. For instance, when, early in the film, Dorothy frantically flees back to her home as the twister begins to build, Professor Marvel lassos his horse and says apprehensively, Better get under cover, Sylvester. A storm's blowing up. A whopper, to speak in the vernacular of the peasantry. Poor little kid. I hope she gets home all right. Although poignant, the scene adds nothing to the plot and was routinely removed from the film. Similar cuts occurred until The Wizard of Oz gained protected status from the Library of Congress in 1991, barring such cuts and mandating that such designated films be broadcast in their entirety. The Wizard of Oz was presented annually until 1991, when several entertainment industry developments combined to alter the unique status of the film. The advent of first video cassettes and ultimately DVDs allowed viewers to watch the film at any time, removing the anticipation for the annual television event. Secondly, Ted Turner purchased the entire MGM catalog, and despite allowing CBS to continue to retain its license to The Wizard of Oz in exchange for giving up Gone with the Wind, CBS's license was eventually phased out with 1998 the last year of its network broadcast. Subsequently, the film was shown so frequently on both TBS, TNT, and TCM that in seven years, various Turner entities had shown it more times than CBS's 31 screenings over five decades. Some of those associated with The Wizard of Oz in some form did not live to participate in the phenomenon created by the film's television renaissance. Frank Morgan worked with Victor Fleming again to great acclaim in the 1942 film Tortilla Flat, garnering a second Academy Award nomination. Morgan, who worked steadily throughout the 30s and 40s, was married to a real estate heiress and owned a 550-acre cattle ranch in Riverside County. He replaced the 81-foot yacht he sold to Victor Fleming with a 71-foot twin-masted schooner he named Dolphin II even competing in yacht races from California to Hawaii. Morgan's high living eventually caught up with him. He died of a heart attack on September 18, 1949, aged 59. Victor Fleming also died in January of 1949, aged 59. Although he received screen credit for directing The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind in the same year and received the Academy Award for the latter film, Fleming has never really received the same acclaim as such contemporaries as Frank Capra, Howard Hawks, or John Ford. His Bel Air horse ranch was transformed into a vineyard and winery known as the Moraga Estate, and today is owned by Rupert Murdoch. Maud Baum survived her husband by 34 years, passing away in 1953 at age 92. She remained in Oscott for that entire time. The home was eventually torn down in the late 50s and replaced by a drab apartment building that still stands in Hollywood on the corner of Yucca and Cherokee, across from a municipal parking lot. Ray Bolger, Jack Haley, and Burt Lars' Hollywood studio experiences were so unpleasant that all three subsequently returned to New York to work on the Broadway stage. While they were gratified to see The Wizard of Oz turn them into American icons, Haley especially never romanticized his employment on the film. In repeated interviews, he stated that he was not at all sentimental about making The Wizard of Oz. It was hellishly tedious and physically overwhelming. 
Laura felt his Hollywood roles were always vacuous and shallow and didn't take advantage of his comedic and acting talent. He finally sold his Beverly Hills estate to Betty Grable and returned to New York City and stage and television commercial success. Ray Bolger also enjoyed success on the stage and on television with occasional film appearances. He was the last of the major Oz cast to pass away on January 15, 1987. Of all of the actors associated with the film, perhaps the strangest outcome was experienced by Margaret Hamilton, the Wicked Witch of the West. Despite her permanent association with the role, she successfully avoided typecasting and enjoyed a lengthy career in film, television, where she appeared on The Addams Family and was a regular on the soap opera The Secret Storm, and even in television commercials, where in her 70s she portrayed the kindly merchant Cora, praising Maxwell House Coffee. But especially as The Wizard of Oz reached nationwide prominence in the 60s and 70s, she received large amounts of mail from fans obsessed with every aspect of her role in the film. She got overwhelming numbers of invitation from groups, schools, and organizations to discuss the film, so many she couldn't possibly fulfill most of them. She often reflected on why this particular performance in this film had such an impact on the audience. Despite the fact that she was only on screen for 12 minutes, she acknowledged that her appearance in Technicolor and her portrayal were terrifying, especially for children. Aware of this effect, she prevented her own son from seeing the film until as a six-year-old, he watched it by accident at a neighbor child's birthday party. Ironically, Hamilton started her career as a kindergarten teacher, was once elected to the Beverly Hills School Board, and maintained a lifelong contact with children's education. When she did speak publicly about The Wizard of Oz, it was usually to an assembly of rapt school children who would invariably freak out when even as an older woman, she perfectly replicated her hideous threats and laughter. Margaret Hamilton died on May 16, 1985, aged 82, only two years after her retirement from acting. The Wizard of Oz did propel Judy Garland to international stardom, but her subsequent career was fraught with addiction issues, marital failure, financial chaos, and heartbreaking family dysfunction. Her father, Frank, died only months after she signed with MGM, having again been forced to leave Lancaster after behavior similar to what transpired in Minnesota. Much like her older sister, Judy attempted to escape her mother's perpetually domineering ways by getting married at age 19 to bandleader David Rose. Neither her mother or Louis B. Mayer approved, the studio head believing that she might taint her image of childlike innocence. When she quickly got pregnant, her husband and mother, among others, convinced her to get an abortion. The marriage lasted only eight months. She next married Vicente Minnelli in 1945, her director in Meet Me in St. Louis, and they had a daughter, Liza. By then, she had cut off any contact with her mother, who, in 1953, dropped dead in the parking lot of the aircraft factory, where she worked for $60 a week. Judy's marriage to Minnelli ended when she came home unexpectedly to find her husband in bed with another man. Initially, her third husband, Sid Luft, seemingly resurrected her career after her studio contract expired and MGM dropped her due to erratic behavior. Her Academy Award nomination for A Star is Born returned her to Hollywood prominence, but she gave complete control of her finances to Luft a compulsive gambler and alcoholic who left her with nothing and owing massive back taxes to the IRS. 
1965, after divorcing Luft, she quickly married Mark Heron, a marriage that ended a little differently when her daughter, Liza, caught Heron in bed with her husband, Peter Allen. By 1968, a hopeless alcoholic addicted to pharmaceutical drugs, Garland grew estranged from her daughter, Liza, who couldn't deal with her monumental issues. Judy occasionally performed in small bars in New York for minimal amounts of cash. Anything else would be seized by the IRS. She married her fifth husband, nightclub promoter Mickey Deans, 10 years younger, on March 15, 1969. Deans transported her to London in an attempt to reestablish Garland's cabaret career. Deans would be the last of several individuals who failed in this regard when he found his wife dead in their home on June 22, 1969. Aged 47, her death was ruled as an accidental overdose of barbiturates. Days later, 20,000 people passed by her open casket on display in a New York funeral parlor before a private service and a eulogy from James Mason, a tribute to her former stature. As Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, Judy Garland was able to return home to a house filled with stability and love. Sadly, in the real world, she was never able to make it over the rainbow. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about The Wizard of Oz. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books The Real Wizard, The Life and Times of L. Frank Baum by Rebecca Longcrane, Victor Fleming, An American Master by Michael Schragow, The Making of The Wizard of Oz by Algene Harmetz, and The Road to Oz by Jay Scarfoni and William Stillman. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com, as well as information about my new novel, Is That Your Final Answer? If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <music>